With the final paroxysm of the January 6th hearings over, Congress is on an extended recess now. It won't have to deal with budgetary matters until after the November elections. For what to expect between now and then and then, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, when do they actually come back or is this it? They aren't scheduled to come back until after the election. I mean, obviously, things could change at some point. But for now, Senate back on November 14th, House probably the next day on the 15th, the week after the election, where they'll have one eye on what to do in this lame duck session and also an eye on what to do starting next year when the new Congress meets on January 3rd or thereabouts. So um, we, we probably will have a period of quiet here on Capitol Hill. You mentioned the big hearing last week from the January 6th committee, and there were a few other things as well. But for the most part, things have shifted to the campaign trail, and that's where you would find members of Congress between now and November 8th when the voting stops. And so they still do have that NDAA, though, and that will be dealt with then by a a lame duck Congress, but not the next Congress. That's correct. The goal there is to wrap up the bill by the end of the calendar year. That's considered a must-pass bill. They've passed it for 60-plus years in a row. They're probably not going to break that streak. No armed services chairman wants to be the person that breaks that one, given how long they've done it. The Senate actually came back last week, at least a few members, to kick off the formal debate on that piece of legislation, calling up what the House had sent over, then offering their own substitute amendment that has what the Armed Services Committee on the Senate side wants to do, and tacked on a bunch of other provisions that could potentially ride along with an eventual conference vehicle on that or a agreement between the House and the Senate, because that will be one of the two big bills really moving by the end of the year, that plus government funding. And those bills will both be attractive vehicles to latch different policies onto, because given the amount of time they have, you know, they can't process too much legislation given how long things can take. So they're going to look for how to package stuff together. Yeah. So we might see omnibus looking types of things happening. Well, that is the goal that appropriators have had. Um, They passed a continuing resolution before they left to keep the government funded through December 16th, you know, 10 days from Christmas. So um, they have until then really to figure out what to do. There has been a push from many Republicans to just extend that CR into next year. In fact, that was some Republicans opening bid, fund the government into next year, let whoever's in charge then. Of course, they hope it's them on the Republican side, run the debate next year and figure out how to fund the government. There's pressure among appropriators to get the job done, write a bill that funds the entire government through September 30th of next year, have a clean slate ready to go for whomever is in charge of Congress starting next year. Um, So that's what's one of the tracks that's working right now is can they assemble this bill that covers the entire government, deals with the riders, deals with funding levels. That's been elusive so far to have that agreement between all the sides on how much to spend. We'll see what happens between now and then. Well, if there is a change in the control of either of the chambers that will be evident after the election, would that help or hurt the chances of getting that budget resolved just after the December 16th cutoff for the CR now that would still be before the new Congress is established in January? I think there will be some tough conversations and some you know, temperature checks when they get back for that first week to figure out what to do. If the Republicans win the House, which they're favored to in a lot of ways, the Senate seems still kind of up for grabs just given the way the races are playing out. You could have a scenario where you're looking at at least some aspect of divided government going into the next year. Republicans may decide they don't want to have this hanging over their head and, and come to some sort of an agreement, or they may hold firm and, and say that they're not going to agree to that. Where the Republicans have leverage currently is the Senate, where because you need six votes to cut off debate and come to a conclusion on this legislation. Republicans do have a lot of sway there more than they do in the House where, you know, a majority can do basically whatever it wants in the House and uh, the Democrats 
presumably will want to push this through and, and give Joe Biden the bill that the Democrats want. So I do think it's going to come down to what happens on Election Day. And if the election goes into overtime in the Senate, which it very well may if a runoff is needed in Georgia, then that could be hanging over our head with some question marks. Got it. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director of Bloomberg Government. And is it any sort of a wild card, the precarious health of Senator Leahy, who is leaving the Senate anyway, but not until the term is up and the new Senate is seated? Well, in a couple of ways. First of all, he is the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. He and Richard Shelby are leading the discussions on that side and, and have worked together traditionally through the years to, to get things done. So that would be one way if something were to befall him, that would be one major effect. The other would be a vacancy could be filled, but Vermont has a Republican governor and that seat would remain in existence through the end of this Congress. The new person technically wouldn't take their seat until next year. So we'd have to see what happens there. So very speculative there given um, what's going on. But he has a big role to play in the lame duck session, given that he is the appropriations chairman and that's one of the top jobs. Right. And the other issue, I guess, for the new Congress is very often people that are appointed by an administration want to change careers again at the second half. So there might be some new appointees coming in. And there are considerable number of Senate-confirmed openings now anyway carrying over. Does it look like they're going to do anything on that when they come back at the end of the year? Or will that all probably have to wait until the new Senate comes in? One of the few things that did happen last week on the Hill was a Judiciary Committee hearing looking at judges, which is another part of the executive docket that they have to deal with the, the judicial picks that Joe Biden sent up. And they're trying to get as many of those through as they can this year. So they've been processing them through hearings and markups and things like that. I, I would say the same is true if people start rotating out of jobs or filling the vacancies that exist. They'll try to do as much as they can between now and the end of the year. Again, they may be awaiting those election results, even an election result in December if it goes down there in Georgia to figure out if they'll be in control. But you got to play the cards you have. And the cards you have right now is a 50-50 Senate that, with the help of the vice president, allows you to push nominations through. So I'm sure they'll be keeping an eye on that and trying to get as much done as they can ahead of next year. If they keep the majority, that makes that part of the job a little easier. And presumably that will be one of the busy things that the Senate will do is continuing process these nominees as vacancies open. And I guess, you know, they could do what they did, I think, for the first year of the Trump administration on the budget, getting back to the budget, is simply the Republicans and the Democrats say to one another, all right, I'll give you what you want on domestic. You give me what I want on military or civilian versus military. And everybody goes home happy because it's done. That could be it. I mean, our reporter, budget reporter Jack Fitzpatrick was reporting last week on a longer term budget thing, maybe the third quarter of next year when the debt limit becomes an issue again, when the government's borrowing authority runs out. And there could be a lot of pressure around that to demand some spending caps being reimposed or perhaps looking at changes to Social Security and Medicaid or other entitlement programs. So I, I do think there's a big budget debate that will occur next year around raising the debt limit, funding the government, how all these things tie together. And divided government can be an opportunity to have real discussions about that, but there could also be a protracted battle where people are digging in on their positions. So I know that that story got a little bit of traction and, and there was some response from Democrats about that. We'll have to see how that plays out going into next year, but it could be a fraught battle just because the positions are so different between the parties. And so far as we know, the pugilistic challenge that uh, Speaker Pelosi wanted to take to the chin of Donald Trump, she hasn't expressed that for whoever might be the successive speaker should the Republicans take the House. 
No, not so far. Um, she will have to have a relationship with somebody, and they'll be working together for the rest of the year to figure out, you know, she and Kevin McCarthy, the current minority leader. Um, he wants to be speaker. He would run for that job, and we'll see how that goes. But um, it's it's a fraught relationship, that uh, minority and majority relationship on the Hill. But so far, no fisticuffs are promised on either side. Indeed. All right. Lauren Duggan is deputy news director of Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.